Hello, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, we'll give people a couple of seconds here just to join in. Um, you might notice that a couple of the speakers are um, joining in in a minute here. Um, okay. Um, thank you all for joining us today for this important discussion on the regional and international implications of the impending Israeli annexation and extension of uh, Israeli sovereignty over vast areas of the occupied West Bank. Um, my name is Tamara Kharou. I am the Assistant Executive Director and Senior Research Fellow at Arab Center Washington, D.C. And I am pleased to welcome you all on behalf of Arab Center Washington, D.C and the Institute for Palestine Studies to this joint webinar. We are very glad to be hosting this event in partnership with the Institute, of, uh, the Institute for Palestine Studies, excuse me. Um, we are also very fortunate and honored to have a stellar lineup of experts who have taken the time to be with us today and to share their insights and their analyses. Thanks to all the speakers for joining us and we look forward to your contributions. And thanks to everyone who's joining in um, to listen to the conversation on Zoom and on the websites of Arab Center Washington, D.C. and the Institute for Palestine Studies. As most of you know, uh, an Israeli government, um, a unity government, has finally been installed after about a year and a half. And one of the few agenda items the two parties agreed to focus on is the issue of annexation, which could be voted on as early as July 1st. As a response, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas announced that the PA will end all agreements and understandings signed with um, Israel and the United States. This all comes under the patronage of the Trump administration and his so-called peace proposal, as well as its efforts to push for uh, normalizing relations between Arab states and Israel outside the parameters of the Arab Peace Initiative. And also, uh, we heard from Netanyahu, he declared, um, to nobody's surprise, if I may add, that uh, Palestinians in the Jordan Valley will not get citizenship after annexation. Within this political envi environment, many questions are, are being raised. For example, do these recent developments present a real game changer? Or are they a mere culmination of decades of expansionist Israeli policies and international impunity? Will Mahmoud Abbas actually follow through with his proclamation to end agreements, uh, especially given that he's made several threats in the past? What is the significance of the timing for, of, of this formalization of annexation uh, of Area C? And what is the economic and strategic significance of these areas, which constitute about 60% of the occupied West Bank? What are the legal implications of, of this move? both in Palestine, Israel, and internationally. And finally, while annexing territory by force is a violation of international law, are we to expect different reactions this time around from Arab states and the international community, um, especially um, now that there is no question left about um, the reality of apartheid? Uh, in general, I would like to frame the questions in, in three sets or themes, if you will. The first has to do with the past. What factors, political and legal, in the domestic, regional, and international arenas have paved the way uh, for this almost inevitable reality? The second theme has to do with uh, the present. Why now? 
specifically looking at the July 1st and the six-month timeline presented by the Israeli government. Is the Trump administration here the golden window of opportunity for Israel? Will formal annexation actually happen at this time? And who are the forces in Israel and the US pushing for it? And the third set of, set of questions is about the future or the morning after. Um, is this a game changer for Israel, for the Palestinian Authority, and with regard to the suffering and, and human rights violations of the Palestinian people? But also, is this a game changer when considering the fallout across the region, the international community, and for the United States? Will there be action or just the usual empty rhetoric? What are the political and legal ramifications? And what are the options that remain after formal annexation? Um, to answer these questions and probably many more, we are very fortunate, as I mentioned, to have uh, a great panel of experts uh, who are the best, if I may say, um, at this. Um, our speakers for today need no introductions by any means, but I will briefly try to introduce them in, in, in speaking order by listing their current or most recent affiliations, and all of them have achieved much more, um, as many of you know. Uh, first, we have Rashid Khalidi, who is joining us today from Chicago, I believe. He is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. Um, also, he's the co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and the president of the Institute for Palestine Studies USA. Nasser Al-Qudwa, who is currently in Ramallah, is the chairman of the board of directors of the Yasser Arafat Foundation. He is also the former Palestinian representative to the United, United Nations. Raif Zreik, joining us from Nazareth, is Associate Professor of Law at Ono Academic College and the co-director of Minerva Center for the Humanities at Tel Aviv University. Noor Aliqat, um, who um, will be joining us in a minute, is a human rights attorney and assistant professor at Rutgers University. Leila Farsakh, uh, joining us from Boston today, is associate professor and chair of the political science department at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And Khalil Jahshan, uh, joining us from the DMV area, is the Executive Director of Arab Center, Washington, D.C. Thanks to all of you for being with us today. We are honored to have you, and we very much look forward to your contributions. Uh, before I turn to the speakers, please allow me to remind the viewers that you can send in your questions anytime during the discussion. Uh, you can use the Q&A feature on the Zoom platform. And uh, to those watching uh, on our website and the IPS website, you can send in your questions by email to events at arabcenterdc.org. Again, that is events at arabcenterdc.org. Please identify yourself and your affiliation and indicate to whom your question is addressed. And we will try to take as many questions as possible. And now without further ado, we will start the discussion. I will give each of the speakers about eight to 10 minutes to present their remarks and um, then we'll take your questions and we'll try to take as many questions as possible. Um, I would like to turn first to Rashid Khalidi. Um, Rashid, you have written extensively on the historic political and legal trends leading up to this point, uh, specifically the legacy of colonialism and impunity. How did we get here? And um, do these recent developments represent a um, 
significant change at this time? And in your assessment, what are the future projections and remaining options moving forward? Um, Rashid, you have the microphone. If you might turn on your mic, yes. Thanks, Damara. Um, and thanks to everybody who's, uh, who's participating uh, virtually. Um, this is actually not something new. Um, this is part of a longstanding historical process, which is related to the fundamental unchanging aims of the Zionist movement. Um, the Zionist movement always aimed to absorb all of historical Palestine. This is nothing new. This is the, the latest of a series of many, many, many steps that go back to the founding of modern political Zionism over 120 years ago. Um, and this is something that initially the great power patron that made the success of Zionism possible, the Great Britain uh, and its leaders, uh, originally endorsed. As far as Britain was concerned, Palestine was to become an entirety of Palestine, was to become a majority Jewish state, at which point it would be allowed to become independent. So the original aim uh, that Zionism had and the original aim that the British endorsed through the Balfour Declaration, that the British leaders who were involved in the issuance of the Balfour Declaration intended was that Zionism should take over all of Palestine. So this annexation is the last in a whole series uh, of steps uh, towards an end that really has never changed. And you need only look at the writings of Herzl, uh, the writings and the private writings in particular of Herzl, the private writings of Weizmann, uh, the private writings of Ben-Gurion or of other leaders like, uh, like uh, Zev Jabotinsky to see that the unchanging permanent objective of the Zionist movement was to take over all of Palestine, not just the areas that they managed to seize by war in 1948, um, and to absorb them entirely uh, into a state that would be a Jewish a Jew, a state dominated by uh, a Jewish majority. Uh, so this is not new. Uh, it's the latest, as I say, the latest step. Now, um, what is new? There are a couple of things that are new. Um, one of them is that the Trump administration has gone beyond what any American administration has ever done. American administrations basically allowed the annexation uh, of East Jerusalem and large areas to the north and south of Jerusalem, and basically allowed the annexation of the Golan Heights while maintaining a public position of opposition. But in effect, the United States has done absolutely nothing uh, since 1967, when Israel first annexed Jerusalem, uh, or since the annexation of the Golan Heights, done absolutely nothing uh, besides meaningless resolutions or meaningless statements to prevent Israel uh, from doing these things. It has not sanctioned uh, uh, Israel for its seizure of Jerusalem, its annexation of Jerusalem, its absorption of Jerusalem, nor has it done the same thing regarding the Golan Heights. Golan Heights wines are available in American stores. The United States could easily have said, this is illegal, we oppose it, you will not be allowed to benefit from it. Uh, produce from the Golan Heights is not allowed. American citizens cannot go to ski resorts in the Golan Heights. It could have done many, many things, obviously. So the United States, in effect, has gone along with prior annexations. Uh, however, it's always maintained uh, in order to uh, uh, keep the, what I would argue is the fiction of a two-state solution alive, 
that Israel did not have the right to annex further territories, except in the context of an international negotiation, an international negotiation that would be uh, mediated by a dishonest broker, the United States, an international negotiation, which the United States would always set the ground rules for in order for that negotiation to be favorable to Israel. But nevertheless, Israel, until uh, the Trump administration, was constrained in its efforts uh, to maintain and continue this process of the absorption of all of Palestine by an American insistence that this takes place in the context of a negotiation and an agreement. Um, the Trump administration has changed this. The Trump administration has, for the first time, openly endorsed the long-standing objective, maximalist objective of the Zionist movement of taking over all of Palestine. Um, essentially, the nation state law of 2018, which was passed by the Knesset, which is a basic law of the state of Israel. In other words, it's a constitutional law, and which says that in, in Israel, there's only one people with the right of self-determination. Uh, prefigures this annexation. If there's only one people with the right of self-determination in the state of Israel, and the state of Israel controls the entire territory from the river to the sea, then in a certain sense, annexation is a logical uh, consequence of that. Um, and nobody in the United States raised a finger to object to the Israel nation state law. I would guess that uh, of 435 lawmakers, almost none of them are even aware of the law or what it means. Um, <clears throat> But the Trump administration has now openly endorsed what no American administration has ever been willing to say, which is that we, we basically agree that there's only one people in Palestine and that therefore sovereignty and legal and, and the, 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 the legal arrangements around it uh, should comport with this reality. There's one people, there's a subordinate people, but it doesn't have rights to sovereignty or to uh, national independence, and it will live under the control of Israel to the extent to which it's allowed to live. That's the position, as we know, of the Trump uh, administration. Let me let me conclude by saying I think there are a couple of important questions. I mean, I don't have answers to Tamaya's question, what's going to happen? I, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but I think there are a couple of questions that we should keep in mind, and I think the other panelists are, are some of them are better, are better suited to answering these questions than I am. Um, the first question is the obvious one, and Tamara already alluded to it, which is what is going to be the international reaction to this? What is going to be the European reaction in particular? What is going to be the Arab reaction? The reaction of the Arab states, most of which are not democratic, do not represent their people, do not have legitimacy, uh, are not constrained by public opinion, are dependent on external forces for protecting them against their own people and against external enemies, are weak. Uh, are playthings in a region which is dominated by external powers and by regional powers like Israel, Turkey, and Iran. Uh, these weak Arab states uh, are faced with a very difficult dilemma in, in facing this question of annexation. Because Arab public opinion, we know from the surveys that the Arab Center has done, is very supportive of the Palestine question. It's not represented by its governments in that. The Arab governments are complicit with Israel in many respects, but Arab peoples are not. They, they, they still support Palestine. And so these governments are in a difficult position and it's gonna be interesting to see how that develops. Finally, what is going to be the Palestinian reaction? And I'm not gonna speculate on that. I'll leave that to my fellow panelists. I wanna conclude with one other question that I think is really important, which is if Trump is not reelected in November, 
if we have a new administration in Washington in January of 2021, uh, will this annexation stand? In other words, will Israel be allowed by the U.S. government, as it was allowed over the Golan Heights, as it was allowed over Jerusalem, to effectively do whatever it pleases, with the United States bleating some meaningless verbiage about uh, opposition to it, while Israel gets away with murder, as it has in every case in the past. I think this is a very important question. And I don't think that it's decided by the fact that uh, uh, Joe Biden has always been pro-Israel. Joe Biden is surrounded by a clique of advisors who are as pro-Israel as any group around any president since Nixon. I don't think it's decided uh, by the fact that the entire leadership of the Democratic Party is very pro-Israel. I think it will be decided by struggles that will go on in the Democratic Party and in the United States over this issue. It's not, in other words, overdetermined just because the Democratic Party establishment is as Zionist as the Republican Party establishment in some respects. Um, the last thing I want to say is I think this has this annexation will have really important implications for a discussion that's been going on for a very long time about one state or two states. Um, as Israel pounds nails into the coffin of the two-state solution, which it's been doing since 1967, systematically destroying any possibility of a two-state solution. Uh, the question will be, when will the fact that the emperor has no clothes finally be impossible to conceal? Um, and I, I don't know when that will be. Uh, the degree of self-delusion that Europeans in particular, but also American politicians and many other people in the world are capable of indulging is extraordinary. The degree to which people can lie to themselves and say the emperor is beautifully dressed, the two-state solution is on the, on the threshold, um, is mind-boggling. Um, it may survive even this enormous nail in the coffin, um, but we shall see. Um, and I think that that's one of the questions that we should all be thinking about. Uh, not because uh, it necessarily means a one-state solution is easy. A two-state solution is being made impossible by Israel, but a one-state solution, which is not one Zionist, racist, discriminatory state between the river and the sea, uh, is not an outcome any of us, I think, would be happy with. In fact, I don't think many, many people, including people in the Jewish community in the United States, would be happy with that. It's an outcome that uh, uh, is going to cause enormous conflict in the future. And I think many people realize that. And I think I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, thank you, Rashid. Um, a lot of questions, um, but a lot of insights. Um, I would like to turn one of your questions um, about the Palestinian reaction specifically um, to uh, Nasser al-Qudwa to get a sense of the Palestinian perspectives on this. Um, first, what are the implications, uh, Nasser, of the PA's decision to end relations with Israel and the United States? And is this part of a larger political strategy? Um, and within the context of annexation, what is the viability of the Palestinian Authority at this point? Um, what options do the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian advocacy active civil society have um, now moving forward? Nasser. Okay, uh, thank you, Tamara. Thank you for the organizers and for all the participants. Thank you for the opportunity. I think this is a hugely important topic that needs this kind of debate and many uh, more debates in the future. As you said, I was asked to speak about Palestinian perspectives, feasibility and implications 
to the PA of ending relations with the United States and Israel, and then options, which in my mind mean how uh, we can confront the threat of uh, annexation as Palestinian people and uh, Palestinian authority, if you wish. Before doing that, uh, I think I was intrigued by uh, Tamara's question. Is this a game changer or just the culmination of uh, long-term policies? I think it's both. It is a culmination of uh, long-term policies of settler colonialism, building settlements, uh, confiscation of land, etc., etc. But it is at the same time a game changer, which uh, I think obliges all parties to, 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 to react and to confront this, trying first to, um, to prevent it, and if not, uh, to, to react very seriously to it. And by saying everybody, I mean, uh, the Palestinian people, I mean, uh, I mean the, the Arab states, I mean the international community, Europe, etc., United Nations, everybody. Because this is a threat not only to the Palestinian national rights, but I think it's threats to uh, international uh, order, international norms of conduct, international law, you, you, you name it. So uh, it is collective responsibility. However, I believe that the Palestinian side needs to play the leading role which, unfortunately, we have to admit, is not there. And that has to be one of the objectives of this debate. Anyway, going now to the uh, Palestinian official position. Uh, as I can understand it, it is one that says that the Palestinian Authority will not be bound by the existing agreements with Israel and with the United States. Adding to that, uh, there is a language that get close to the idea of uh, come on Israelis and uh, be in charge, take over. In addition to statements with regard to severing relations with uh, Israel and severing relations with, uh, with the United States. What does, what does this exactly mean? This is the big question. Adding to the problem is the fact that similar positions, if not exactly same positions, were adopted in the past without concrete results, which of course create even additional, additional confusion. However, I have to admit that this time, it seems that the Palestinian leadership are bent on showing more seriousness in dealing with the situation. So until now, as far as I can see, there is no relations with the Israelis, and there was indeed a serious severance of relationship. Whether this will continue or not, and how we are going to solve all problems that we will be facing, what are the uh, long-term implications, what are the legal political implications, these are questions that frankly, unfortunately, do not, do not have answers. To be frank with you, I think that we, uh, as, as Palestinian side, needed different, uh, different approach. We needed different strategy, different approach. Uh, one that is clearer and more efficient in confronting the threat of uh, annexation. One that uh, contained policies, uh, positions, measures under, I might say, four, four titles. The first one is the political. And in this regard, I think the Palestinian position should have been one that 
announced very clearly that any Israeli annexation will be tantamount to an official Israeli announcement of ending the political settlement, the negotiated settlement, thus changing the game from our side as well. At the same time, I think the Palestinian side should have said that we remain committed to our struggle to achieve national independence in the state of Palestine on 1967 borders with Jerusalem as its capital. And here, I'm, I think, I hope that I'm clear, I'm talking about our national goal. I'm not talking about the so-called two-state solution, a term that I hate because it reflects some kind, the more recent political process of negotiations, followed by negotiations, followed by negotiations with no, with no results. Nevertheless, Rashid al-Khaldi, of course, posed the question, two-state solution, state of Palestine on 1967 borders, or I don't know what, one-state solution. Honestly, I don't believe that there is something called one-state solution. There might be one-state reality that is imposed by force, which requires victory, total victory from one side over the other. If we achieve victory, then we are going to build a democratic state, Palestine, democratic Palestine, where everybody lives in democracy and equal rights, blah, 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 blah. If the Israelis win, they will achieve greater Israel, as they are trying now. However, thinking that there is binational state and state one reality that will grant Palestinians rights and we will be, everybody will be happy and in dandy situation, I think this is not realistic. Again, I'm not talking about any diplomatic formula. I'm talking about the, right of the, the rights of the Palestinian people. We are the indigenous people of the land. We are the owners of land and we made re repeatedly huge concession ending with 1967 borders. Are we going to give up on that? And what is the alternative? What's the alternative? So I think this is an important issue. We, we need to, to, to uphold it very, very clearly. Moving, moving forward, I think we, the second title should be confronting settler colonialism in a serious way, legislating, mobilizing, uh, uh, confronting uh, uh, settlers, settlements on the ground. And that, by the way, is different than, let's say, BDS. BDS is something to be respected, it's something to be supported, but it's not the same as confronting settler colonialism, which is the duty of states under their legal obligations per Geneva Conventions. It's not a moral or political thing only, it's a legal obligations that states have to fulfill, However, for them to do that, we, the Palestinian side, need to do our share. The third title is uh, redefining, redesigning the Palestinian Authority and the Palestine Liberation Organization to, con to, 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 to form the Palestinian Authority in a way that makes it only uh, a body that provides services for the Palestinian people. For instance, I think we need to uh, transfer back to the PLO, the uh, authority on the uh, uh, embassies and uh, foreign representation. And at the same time, with regard to the PLO, we need to abrogate the, uh, 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 the administration or the, uh, uh, 
how they call that. Uh, the 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 negotiations department, yes, department. The negotiations department need to be abrogated, and I think generally the PLO need to be rebuilt uh, on a clear basis, either with the participation of Hamas and the Jihad, if we reach agreement with them on the overall situation, Gaza, or without them, if we fail, God forbid, reaching that kind of agreement with the constituencies, the current constituencies of the PLO. The last, the last one would be, uh, the last uh, title would be uh, relationship with Israel. And I think uh, we need to uh, completely redefine this, but in a realistic way, in a gradual way, and, and probably very hard way, uh, that, that would allow the Palestinian side to get out, relatively speaking at least, from the current uh, dilemma that we, we have into a different, different situation. One, for instance, whereby the Palestinian side can rely on itself at least to feed itself in terms of uh, small farms, uh, uh, home economy, uh, uh, some kind of, of, of steadfast kind of, of economy. You need, you need a plan, you need a strategy that would then take the Palestinian people from the current horrible situation to a different situation, thus enabling it to confront the uh, Israeli occupation in a, different, in a different manner. And I think I consume by, by this, I consume the time given to me. Thank you again, and I hope that I was able to uh, answer some of your questions. Uh, thank you, Nasser. And now we move from uh, the Palestinian perspective and, and options to the Israeli calculus. And I would like to turn to Ra'if Zreq. Um, Ra'if, what, what is the Israeli rationale and what are the political dynamics and factors facilitating um, this move? And also, what are the legal implications for Israel with regard to annexation and ending relations um, with the PA? Ra'if. Please turn on your microphone, Raif. Okay, you hear me now? Yes, go ahead. Okay, thank you, Tamara, and thank you all. Um, I've listened to to Rashid and uh, and and Nasser. I agree with much of uh, what they've said. I I'll make my remarks uh, brief. Some of them legal, and some of them uh, political. And I also try to address the question, how far is this a culmination of a long process? It's an old story. And uh, how far is it a new story? What the newness in this story? And I think one should even be able to see both of them. Otherwise, uh, we might fall into dogmatic uh, thinking that uh, history only repeats itself. Uh, but uh, it's more than that. So about the legal, a few legal issues that probably might be boring. Uh, one thing is it's important to differentiate between the question of sovereignty and the question of the applying or enforcing Israeli law and order. Um, the question of sovereignty is a question of international law. It's not a question of municipal local law. Uh, so the Golan Heights, uh, the sovereignty still belongs to Syria, despite the fact that Israel 
um, enforces the law and order in the Golan Heights. Um, so these are two different questions. The enforcement of law is a local question, internal question for each state to decide where is the territory that it enforces its legal system. But the question of sovereignty, because it touches upon the relation between different states and different nations, it should be decided it's not by the state itself, by, by an international uh, legal order and legal uh, organs. So, so this is one thing. The other thing regarding Israel itself is the interesting fact that according to the Israeli law, there is um, asymmetry, complete asymmetry between the possibility within the Israeli legal system to annex the new territories, which actually could be done even without the Knesset passing a law. Uh, the government itself has the authority actually uh, to declare uh, the fact that certain territories uh, are uh, under uh, Israeli legal uh, order and are subject to Israeli law. Uh, though the issue with the Golan Heights, they passed the law. But on the other hand, if Israel uh, decides to make an agreement where they give up territory, they withdraw from territory, then it's, the things are com very complicated. Uh, they have uh, this must pass uh, by a Knesset majority vote of 80 Knesset members and then a referendum. So there is no symmetry between the easiness with which Israel expands and the difficulties with which it should shrink, it should withdraw. So th this is, says something about the nature, the tilt, the structural tilt that we know about Zionism as a movement not a state it's an ongoing revolution to expand this is the legal manifestation that actually shows the fact that israel is a movement in a state of expansion all the time and that's why israel never had actually internally declared the clear borders ever so this is this is one thing now, a few facts that probably it's important not to see only the, the overall picture, but also some details that can make a difference on the ground and actually can help me see in what sense there's something new here um, and, and what this newness is comprised, uh, comprised of. First of all, the amount of territory that is being annexed is 20% of the West Bank. Now that's that's quite a number, 20% um, of the West Bank all along the um, the Jordan uh, River. Uh, that's that's quite a lot. The the number um, the, the the numbers of dunams that the Palestinians own as a private, not as a public land, but Palestinians own there about 200,000 dunams in these territories. Now, bear that in mind, please. Um, Jericho will be complete enclave within this Israeli sovereign new space. So anybody coming out from Jericho, anybody coming into Jericho, needs uh, to go sort of through a foreign country. Uh, so you can imagine that how this would cut Jericho completely. 
uh, not to speak that they cut the farmer from the lands that they used. Uh, um, uh, they use. Add to that that the two main roads that connect parts of the West Bank uh, actually uh, were made basically for settlers. Uh, a long road, uh, route number 90, which the Palestinians use now, they will be completely within the new uh, annexed territory, which means that even the roads that connect parts of the West Bank with each other would be limited because the Palestinians wouldn't be allowed to take these roads. So we are really speaking about something that, that completely fragments the West Bank. I mean, it's already fragmented, but this is a real blow to the continuity of, of the West Bank. Now, add to this fact that along all of this, along this territory, there's a new border between the Palestinian Authority, sort of, let's call it, whatever you call it, uh, the PA territory, and this Israeli territory. Now, we know how Israel treats its borders. You have a border, then you, have, you need a bypassing road, actually, to, to secure the border, and then you have to have a sort of a free zone where you can build houses near to this border. So if you can imagine that, the 20% are not only 20%. The 20% is definitely more than 20% de facto. So this is really um, this is really upgrading the Israeli presence in the in the West Bank. Now, if whether it's annexed, whether it's the I don't know the wording of the proposed law would be or enacting or applying Israeli law or sovereignty or whatever you call it in these territories. Uh, that would really facilitate and makes the life far more easier for land confiscations. I mean, until now, despite everything we say about the occupation, um, usually Israel tried to use lands that are considered mawat, state lands, that were belongs to the uh, British mandate and then to the Jordanian uh, crown, and now they became sort of belong to the Israeli state. Uh, until recently, they didn't confiscate land from private Palestinians, or at least in theory they did not, or try to avoid confiscation for uh, public purposes. Now, public purposes are always for Jewish settlers. Uh, in fact, in the last two, three years, there was a change in the legal discourse even on that point. But it's still something debatable. But now, if this is part of Israel per se, you can imagine the 200,000 dunams being confiscated easily tomorrow. Uh, not to mention that given that those people, the, the owners of these lands live in the West Bank, um, using the precedence of uh, East Jerusalem, they can easily be announced to be absentees because they live in another country. Uh, so confiscating their land would be uh, an easy job. So, I do think we should see the details also, the, the, the particular details of the plan as really an upgrading and accelerating a process that has been taking place. Now, it's true that Israel does almost whatever they like in the West Bank. They are the real sovereign, they have the power, they control the air, the, the water, the, 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 the air beneath the earth, anything. But until now, at the 
the annexation or let's say the application of Israeli law was personal. So it's, it's endless processes of decrees and, um, and orders by military commanders that actually apply to the law to the settlements. But now we are having um, upgrading a new reality that makes things far more complicated. And here I think that whatever people think the final solution might be, one, two, three, five states, whatever, this should be opposed. Because whatever um, the one state or two state solution, even if it's one state solution, the Palestinians in the West Bank need a place to live and to extend and to have farms and whatever. So I think this is, uh, those who are fans of the one-state solution uh, shouldn't really um, feel ease with this move as, oh, finally we're having one-state solution. This should be opposed regardless of the people's stand on the final, on the final solution. Now, what is new about this is, apart from the Diore not only de facto declaration that Oslo is completely dead. I think we are witnessing a new, um, a new paradigm, actually. Uh, a new paradigm on the way the Israeli Zionist political imagination works. I mean, demography has been always an obsession for, for Zionism. Uh, in 1948, they solved the problem of uh, demography by expelling the Palestinians. Uh, after 1967, they solved, they, they reintroduced the problem that they solved, solved in 1948. But this time they didn't commit the mistake of granting Palestinians in the West Bank Israeli citizenship. So they put things on hold. And after 20, 30 years in the Intifada, they thought that, okay, sooner or later they will get their Palestinian state. They are not part of us, they're not part of the political entity called Israel. So the political imagination is, was political imagination of separation based on territorial ground. We are here, they are there, and we continue to be a democratic with deficiencies called Israel and the Palestinian on their road to status. Now I think this mechanism cannot work anymore. Because even, uh, no much how you want to stretch the imagination, uh, the, the idea of separation now, it's not separation between two entities on territorial ground, it's separation on ethnic ground, because it's not separating two separate entities or two separate states or two separate territories. The separation is on national religious ground. And in this sense, I do suggest to read the Israeli nation law, basic law, Israel as a Jewish state for the Jewish people and the annexation, not as two separate plans, but as two plans that feed on the same rationale. And the rationale is that between the river and the sea, there are two groups of people and there is a superiority for the Jewish people over the Palestinian people. Now, that doesn't mean that me in Nazareth suffer from the same um, violation of rights um, that people in Ramallah do, or people in East Jerusalem, or people in Gaza. This is definitely not the same. 
But that's the way with apartheid system. They always do some differential treatments and they take the natives and fragment them into several uh, degrees of rights uh, and privileges, but that still um, doesn't mean uh, that there is no superiority for the white, uh, for, for the white Jews, if they, we can call them white, but it's an era of white supremacy, white supremacy, colonial supremacy. Now, I I'm going to finish. If I want to finish, I, I would finish with the question, speaking about the Israeli political scene. Uh, what does it mean now? Now, Israel has no alternative to Netanyahu, politically speaking. It's done. It's been even in the last 10 years, probably we can speak about uh, Livne at one point, Barak at one point, the Labour Party, but now everything collapsed. And the question is, um, who, what does it mean now to be peace camp in Israel? Israeli left, what, what does that mean? And based on what? And what would they demand? What, uh, what is their political agenda? I don't know. It doesn't seem that nobody knows how this left can reorganize, uh, reorganize itself. Um, so I would stop here and see if there are any further questions uh, later on. Thank you, Raif. Um, and from that, I would like to move to um, the international legal dimension with um, Nuraif. Um, perspective of international and uh, human rights, what are the legal implications of annexation? What international legal avenues are available for Palestinians and, and their supporters to pursue? And are there any prospects for accountability at, at this point? Noura. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you to everyone. I just want to echo everyone's thanks um, and start off by saying that we're witnessing right now in the United States one of the most remarkable uprisings of Black people against the structural regime of racial domination um, which is both emblematic of a racial capitalist system that's built on settler colonialism, which affirms once again the international nature of uh, the Black freedom struggle. And so I just want to, right now there are 15 cities under military occupation in the United States that reflects a steady militarization of U.S. law enforcement. Only in the past 10 or so years has that been amplified because of U.S. collaboration with Israel, where Isra the Israeli army trains uh, the U.S. Or, or a decade and a half, at least since the U.S.'s declaration of the global war on terror. And so that the militarization of the police actually um, begins um, very clearly uh, during the U.S.'s Vietnam War, which affirms again and, and makes clear for us that the U.S., what the U.S. is doing in its empire and its domination is both an exchange of technologies uh, between the United States itself and its colonies and a way of reproducing it. And it brings back and, and tells us about uh, uh, one of the best or most successful historical eras of Palestinian resistance to Israeli apartheid, which was articulated as early as 1965 by Fayez Sayer to uh, racial elimination and a framework of settler colonialism, to the declaration of Zionism as a form against racism in 1975, that during this era of anti-colonial upheaval, we see the greatest strides in the Palestinian struggle for freedom, and we see it captured 
right? Captured and incapacitated by the peace process, which takes, which, which contains successfully an anti-colonial struggle into um, a, a peacemaking affair, into a peace and conflict resolution. So I just want, you know, start by, by acknowledging this as a, as a form of responsibility and where we are in our struggle, both against Israeli expansionism, as well as, as, as US racial domination and expans, uh, expansionism. Um, two, I wanna briefly answer the question about law because I'm critical of law, as some of you may know, and move on to both reflecting how this is a liberal problem and ending with thinking about Palestinian responsibility in ways that we should have already move forward. Number one, on the law, here are the frameworks. This is illegal under all um, law that you can think of. Under UN Security Council Resolution 242, this is an abrogation of actually finding a settlement through, through a negotiation, even under Israel's own terms and a tool of domination that they used in order to suppress Palestinians until, for 20 years until they accepted it in 1988. This is a violation of Resolution 242 because it takes unilateral steps that is made clear by the Palestinian boycott of ongoing negotiations under the Trump administration. Number two, this is a grave breach of the, um, fourth, the fourth Geneva Conventions, specifically Article 49, Subsection 6, which prohibits the transfer of one civilian population into the territory that it occupies. This is a willful violation under Article 146 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, and therefore this is tantamount to a war crime. Um, number three, as has been mentioned already, this is also a violation of the UN uh, Charter, specifically Article 2, subsection 4, which prohibits the acquisition of territory by force, protects the territorial integrity of all peoples, and here we're talking about the Palestinian peoples. There is no way that you can approach this and not see it just on the diplomatic territorial level as a violation of international law. If we actually took it to the level of thinking about what uh, Ra'if and Rashid and Nasser have brought up in the sense of there is an unequal regime. Now we get other laws that we can invoke, including the 1973 convention condemning apartheid as a crime against humanity, including the convention on the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination, which in Article 3 actually articulates apartheid as, um, uh, as an offense. So we have at our disposal all sorts of laws that we can use both to contest the territorial acquisition by force, as well as to contest uh, the human rights violations. But unfortunately, this is not a question about the availability of law. As I've tried to you know, share as somebody who's tried to use the law as an advocate, the law is politics and, can only, and its emancipatory purposes can only be leveraged in the service of a political movement. And the Palestinian political movement is not only absent, it's dead. There is no, in, in the official sense, in the official sense, and I wanna qualify this. Um, but before I jump to that, let me just quickly say what I think our audience members already known and have been said, this outcome today is predictable, but it was not inevitable. It is predictable, but it was not inevitable. We have had several opportunities to append this outcome and have not taken it. And here when I say we, I mean Palestinians to at least contest it. And that even though this is happening under a Trump administration, it represents the outcome of liberal policy. 
It represents the outcome of centrists, both who um, have insisted that the U.S. play a primary role, even though the U.S. has facilitated this incremental annexation as, as evidenced by the fact that the territories that Israel wants to annex now have already under de facto annexation. Palestinians in the Jordan Valley not only cannot reach the Dead Sea, but have to pay an entrance fee in order to even access it and are unable to even pay that entrance fee, right? We're talking about de facto annexation. How does this change their reality? What it changes is it becomes a moment of reckoning for the international community, which has done nothing. And even before de jure annexation, the European Union has, has under the third party um, state responsibilities an obligation of non-recognition, as well as a policy of differentiation according to Security Council Resolution 2334. They don't even have to punish Israel in order to apply its own law to hold themselves to account in order to respond to this moment. The availability of remedies is abundant. It's about the political will to actually use them to resist this outcome today and, and, and well before this moment. And then finally, the peace process. This is an outcome. The jurisdictional regime upon which Israel and the US are now negotiating how to annex the territories, and not if I heard that the, the number was actually 36%, not 20%, but uh, I think territories that are marked are, are 60% or areas A, those are jurisdictional regimes that the peace process created. So this is not something, this is not the outcome of a right-wing policy. This is the outcome of a, a liberal policy and a moment of reckoning. So finally, what about the Palestinians and what should we be doing in order to build this political moment? I'll say this, um, the, US, the Palestinian Authority has, has rightly abandoned the Trump administration, but has not abandoned the United States, and it should. Rashid has shown it in his work, Leila has shown it in her work, the U.S. is not an honest broker. There is nothing to be gained by them. They have provided the cover to Israel and actually incapacitated the legal mechanisms that would be available at the ICC, in the Security Council, other third-party tribunals in order to hold Israel to account. So the, the Palestinian Authority should have long abandoned the United States and should abandon them now, as well as the peace process. In terms of strides that are being made for people who live within US empire, we've seen a, a tremendous amount of strides being made just in the past six years, when we've seen eight out of 10 Democratic presidential nominees boycott APAC. We've seen a presidential nominee, Bernie Sanders, actually on stage affirming the humanity of Palestinians in Gaza, which has been almost impossible to speak of because of the success of collapsing Palestine, Gaza, Hamas, Islamophobia, Islamic um, and, and resistance into one category that has obscured the humanity of two million Palestinians trapped under siege. And yet Bernie Sanders was able to stand on, as a presidential candidate to affirm the humanity of Palestinians in Gaza, more so than Palestinian leaders have actually done uh, using their, their many uh, platforms. And finally, we've had members of Congress endorse boycott, divestment, and sanctions, even in an environment where 41 out of 50 US states have passed or proposed legislation to criminalize BDS and to apply some sort of civil sanctions. These, oh, and that's to say nothing of the high level celebrities, athletes, like Miss Lauren Hill, who canceled her conference in Tel Aviv, like NFL line, um, defensive linemen, uh, Michael Bennett, who refused an invitation to Israel after winning the Super Bowl. All of you know, these strides that we're seeing that have actually finally created a wedge between 
made this issue a partisan issue between the Republicans and the Democrats, number one. And even within the Democratic Party, we now can see a wedge between liberal Democrats and establishment Democrats. Those strides reflect the tireless work of Palestinian civil society and Palestinian movement, not the official Palestinian leadership, which is also a moment of reckoning for Palestinians that we have continued to struggle, we have continued to advance a freedom cause, but have done it not only despite the lack, the inefficacy of the Palestinian official leadership, but in spite of their um, opposition to this work in uh, different fora. And this also is not new, again, echoing um, what my, my colleagues have said in the, in the Great Revolt, it was, it was a peasant population that overcame the intransigence of the Arab High Committee in order to say this will be a revolt, not a negotiation. That it was also reflected when Arafat took over the PLO and away from an Arab regime and an Egyptian controlled PLO in order to say that this will be a militant struggle and a radical struggle. We are in another moment where there is a Palestinian leadership that is, is latent and that has been moving forward and will ultimately um, supplant a very inefficacious, uh, inefficacious Palestinian official leadership, which has taken up a tremendous amount of state, space and in my opinion has forestalled a number of mechanisms that could be used on behalf of the Palestinian cause. Thank you. Thank you, Ura. Uh, next, we have Leila Fersakh, who will focus on uh, the political implications and the trajectories going forward. Um, Leila, specifically, um, what roles and potential responses would Arab states and international players have? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Tamara, and thank you also to all my colleagues on the panel and excellent interventions. Yeah, I think in trying to understand the um, regional and international reactions to this, I think it would be very helpful to think in two terms, in terms of short term and long term, or medium term, I'd like to say. In the short term, what we have seen that Arab reactions and international action in general have been opposed to the annexation. Um, Arab countries, especially Jordan, has been very alarmed by this because of the fear of the alternative uh, Palestinian homeland in Jordan has already expressed its dismay and rejection of this and even threatened that it would stop the Israeli-Jordanian peace accords. Um, Arab states have joined all in, in, in denouncing the annexation and calling a return to international law. But as uh, explained by Nora and others, uh, first of all, that law can be a tool of oppression, not a tool of, of, of liberation. But also that above all that these Arab states um, do not, their threats have, do not have much uh, teeth, uh, largely because of the level of dependencies that they have on the, uh, on the Americans. And also because of the nature of the cooperation agreement, whether security or, or um, economics with Israel, whether it's between Jordan and Israel and Egypt and Israel. So what we're gonna see is in the short run, uh, opposition to the annexation uh, and nothing to do about it uh, practically. As to the European, I think they are the most important actor in the story, uh, largely because uh, the EU is the largest trading partner of Israel and uh, Israel has special treatment, although it is not, a, because it's not a member of the EU uh, and despite not being a member of the EU, it has one of the most preferential uh, cooperation agreements with the EU on the level of research, uh, development, security, you name it. 
So the EU could exert a pressure uh, in, in if it wants to impose sanctions, especially as the EU came out clearly against the, uh, the annexation. And uh, again, reiterated also the position of the PA that it wants, it does not recognize any changes to the 1967 borders unless recognized by Israelis and Palestinians and had strongly urged Israel to refrain from annexation. Uh, but again, okay, so the approach of the EU has been to oppose annexation, to oppose any unilateral decision, to and to remain within the framework that Rashid talked about, the international consensus, the American consensus before Trump, that any any movement with the, with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has to be based on negotiation between the two sides. So in other words, the EU, uh, the European community, uh, international community, and the Arab uh, states still adhere to the two-state solution and still adhere to the concept of resuming negotiations. And the strategy has been, the European strategy seems to be to try and get uh, the American and the Palestinian Authority to renegotiate in an attempt to, uh, to, to reenact and re reinitiate the peace process. So this doesn't look very, I mean, this is more of the same. Uh, I think everybody now is waiting for the Trump administration to see what's going to happen with the American elections. The arrival of Biden, the arrival of Trump will be the same, will be the same, more of the same. Uh, and the arrival of Biden is unlikely to change much, uh, although I would like to, from here to follow on how, what Enora said, because I do think if that's what's going to be the reaction in the short term, in the medium term, many things are changing in ways that uh, both on the Palestinian, European, and American side that needs to be taken into consideration. Uh, the coronavirus is going to have major economic effects. The discourse of right is going to have a big boost. Uh, the attack on the liberal, uh, neoliberal economic system that has been enshrined over the past 30 years globally will be under criticism, and this will have serious implications for the American economy, for the global economy, and for the discourse of all those rebelling against oppression, against state domination, against violation of their basic rights. So we're going to have a new reinsurgence of a discourse of right based on social justice. Now, of course, we've known in history, these, this is not new, it goes up and down. Uh, but I think we are uh, reaching a very interesting moment locally regionally and internationally. The question is, will be how to capitalize on it and who's going to capitalize on it. And here I want to come back to the Palestinian side. What can the Palestinian side do in the medium uh, term? I think uh, Nasser al-Qadwe brought some interesting, important position. I think this position of what people in the West Bank uh, talk about, the importance of reviving the PLO, the importance of, uh, I think, ending the fragmentation, the political fragmentation. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much appreciation of resolving the conflict with Hamas, or there is talk about resolving the problem of Hamas, but I think in any attempt for any Palestinian to devise a strategy, even if it is going back to the negotiations, cannot proceed without cleaning the Palestinian home, uh, political home. In other words, there needs to be basic reinitiation of what is the Palestinian national project moving forward, uh, who decides on what is the national uh, Palestinian project moving forward, and how are we going to allow a discourse and a mechanism to allow a larger conversation, not just within the West Bank, uh, and not between just the leaders of the PA, because that's a futile exercise. It has to be a conversation that involves all the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, and finding a mechanism to install a new conversation on where do we want to go forward. 
Now, the revival of the PLO could be an interesting step. I'd like to see who's going to initiate it, how it's going to be implemented. Because I really think that the present leadership has run out of ideas. And they're well aware that we are living in an apartheid reality, in a one-state reality, that the annexation is just a confirmation, whether it happens or not, is a confirmation of what has already been, is happening, okay? So the real question is how we're going to elaborate a discourse of freedom and liberation within the confines of international law, which as Nora explained, we have enough to use from. But the problem is not there. The problem is defining the Palestinian political project moving forward. Now, Nasser Khadwe had, and how many people have big reservation over the two-state, or the one-state argument. I think the point is not to get trapped into is the solution is two-state or one-state, three-state. The solution is how do we define self-determination in the 21st century? Israel has defined it that this is right self-determination is only for Israelis and Israel is a Jewish state. With this, Israel confirmed that it is an apartheid racist state and a settler colonial state. What is the Palestinian answer to that? The Palestinian answer to that is either we want us to remain in our little prison called Gaza and West Bank, or we want the end of this prison. And to end this prison means we need to shift into a discourse of rights, both collective and Palestinian rights, and defining a strategy of how do we decolonize. <clears throat> how do we decolonize Palestine means also that we need to confront Zionism and how we're going to deal with the rights of all those who, are live, who live today between the river of the Such a discourse is has to happen, the discourse, this doesn't mean that we're giving up Palestinian self-determination. Today, Palestinian state project served its historical purposes, is affirmed that we as Palestinians exist, that we have rights, and the international community recognizes that we exist as a people with the right to self-determination, but the implementation of the right to self-determination cannot happen with a Zionist state. And in order to dismantle a Zionist state, we need to articulate what is a strategy of decolonization involves for us and for the Israeli, and start to build bridges with Israelis, Palestinians, with uh, international community, with the activism going today in the United States to see how we can create progressive forces that can articulate an agenda, which is not so leftist as you might think, that actually can be more to the progressive center if people are so scared of revolutions, but which, is imposing itself because you cannot fool people. The economic, the dire economic situation globally and locally will have serious ramification and we need, as Palestinian, I think, to capture the moment by articulating an inclusive, progressive, intelligent agenda. I'll stop at that. Thank you. Thank you, Leila. And now, um, last but certainly not least, um, is Khalil Jahshan to discuss um, US policy and the role of the Trump administration um, and specifically, given that this is an election year, um, how critical is, is annexation for Trump? And should we expect um, any difference from uh, a potential Biden administration? And more specifically, um, at least pressure from some segments of the Democratic Party, as um, some other uh, panelists have alluded to. Khalil? Uh, thank you, uh, Tamara. That was indeed a uh, tour de force, a uh, smorgasbord of, of uh, ideas uh, on all aspects of the uh, uh, political and legal uh, crisis that is faced by the Palestinians with regards to this threatened, uh, significant annexation of occupied uh, territories uh, in the uh, West Bank. Uh, frankly, uh, let me start by saying that uh, being the seventh in this great lineup, I feel like the seventh husband of Jaja Gabor. Uh, 
I know who I am, I know where I am, but I, I'm not quite sure <laughs> what do I have uh, to offer in addition, uh, you know, as added value to this exchange that has taken place uh, thus far. But let, let me start, I'll try. Uh, let me start with uh, the same point uh, that Rashid uh, started with. Annexation, with all due respect, uh, in Palestine is not a new uh, political uh, phenomenon. Indeed, it has been an inherent uh, component uh, of the Zionist enterprise uh, in Palestine since its inception, going back to the second half of the 19th century, and particularly to 1897, as we know with the first uh, uh, Zionist Congress in, in Basel, and the bragging that emerged from that by Herzl that he founded the Jewish state there. But, you know, a practical problem emerged immediately uh, as they began to kind of implement uh, th their plan, which is they discovered this inconvenient uh, fact that the territorial component uh, of, of their plan, the, the real estate, the piece of talking about real estate, since Trump uh, is at the White House these days, uh, the real estate location uh, chosen uh, for this Jewish nation building exercise that they adopted, uh, that piece of real estate was not available, was not empty, was not without people. Uh, regardless of all these statements by all kinds of people, ranging from uh, restorationist uh, Christian Zionists uh, to the early founders uh, of the Zionist movement, claiming that a land without a people to a people without a land. That did not work the way uh, they anticipated. In return, uh, what they did, and it continues to impact us today, is they developed a process of uh, combination, a kind of a, a, two, a twin process of depopulation of Palestine on the one hand and confiscation and annexation of their land on the other. I think if I remember correctly back in undergrad days, uh, I think it was uh, Fayez Syed who coined uh, uh, the phrase that this became kind of like the breathing movement, the breathing process of, of Zionism, the inhaling and exhaling of the Zionist movement uh, in terms of depopulating Palestine and, and annexing uh, the, la the Palestinian uh, land. They had to do that uh, to justify, of course, uh, their raison d'etre, and, and, and this was followed immediately uh, during the uh, early part of the last century, uh, what was known as the pre-state or the yeshuv uh, period, uh, and the process took all kinds of forms. We're familiar with racist uh, phases and racist terminology, uh, including terminology like the ingathering of the exiles, uh, redeeming the land, as if somehow the land was corrupted by its uh, natural inhabitants, uh, terminology like Jewish labor and Arab labor, uh, culminating even in my youth growing up in, in Palestine, the Judaization of the Galilee, uh, and all that stuff, uh, essentially a whole horde of racist expressions pertaining from the same mindset, the same philosophy, if you will. So the Palestinians have dealt with that long before even Trump was born, and they continue uh, to deal with that today. They overcame it in the past, and I'm confident that the Palestinian people uh, will overcome it this time and will overcome it uh, in, in the future. As far as my assignment, which is the, the, the U.S. role in this whole uh, process, uh, traditionally, uh, we all know that uh, U.S. policy has been kind of like uh, 
uh, a support group, if you will, uh, an en enabler uh, to Israeli uh, policy and practices, uh, funding them, uh, giving international cover, and, and that continues. I mean, this administration just threatened yesterday uh, to, to go to the ICC and, and again offer additional, uh, declare war on the ICC for all practical purposes because of its attempt uh, to confront Israeli racist uh, practices. But uh, same thing continued after 67. Uh, it, it was most, I would say, almost like a passive uh, support for Israel. The U.S. was like a cheerleader uh, to Israeli practices. It, it, the, the initiative tended to be Israeli and the support group tended to be American. Uh, as other speakers that preceded me indicated, this has totally changed uh, under Trump. And it's important to account for that if we are to adjust the uh, Palestinian strategy uh, for the future to, to be able to deal effectively with, with U.S. policy, because the U.S. today is actually the initiator of this wave of annexation. It's not a bystander, it's not a supporter, it's not a funder, and it's not an enabler. Uh, what has happened, I think, uh, since uh, Mr. Trump arrived at the White House uh, is a total change in how uh, U.S. Uh, government dealt historically uh, with the Palestine uh, issue. Today, uh, it is not a matter of lobbying. I mean, we, we are still geared and people are still in Palestine and here uh, talking about the lobby and the role of the lobby and the impact on the administration. But frankly, the lobby is not an outside player anymore. The lobby is at the White House and we are paying their salaries. We American citizens, the taxpayers, uh, they are doing their work at our uh, basically uh, expense, literally, politically and, and financially. So uh, what you have uh, today is basically a policy making process with regards to Palestine that is being uh, conducted from the White House. As a matter of fact, even the State Department has been uh, isolated and, and, and signed sidelines. So this is not conventional lobbying to influence U.S. policy. It is actual direct policy making at the source and to add to insult to injury, as I said, is at our uh, taxpayers' uh, expense. The outcome is clear. What we have inherited thus far from this administration is their main product, so-called peace and prosperity, a vision to improve the lives of Palestinians and Israeli people, quote, end of quote. This is not your typical U.S. peace plan. We have seen peace plans galore. We have seen the Rogers plan. We have seen the Camp David Accords. We have seen the Reagan plan. We've seen the Madrid conference. We've seen the Oslo process. We've seen the Clinton parameters. This is totally different. Uh, they were all typically one-sided, pro-Israel, uh, indifferent toward uh, the pal Palestinian aspirations and internationally recognized Palestinian uh, rights. But this scheme, and it's not a plan, uh, this Trump scheme, peace and prosperity, actually offers neither. It's neither a peace plan nor is it uh, basically a plan for prosperity. It is actually, as far as I uh, can tell, a declaration of war against the Palestinian people seeking to deprive them of their very uh, basic uh, kind of even aspiration uh, for a comprehensive, just and lasting peace, to block the road toward that. It is an underhanded attempt to produce an end of conflict agreement that there is no more Palestinian issue after this, uh, but without even the semblance of a political process, uh, as previous administrations 
have done without any political ne negotiations. And as a matter of fact, this was confirmed this morning, Haaretz this morning confirmed uh, uh, part quotes from the conversation that took place between the settler leaders and Netanyahu yesterday. And he confirmed to them that he will not, in implementing this idea of annexation, he will not abide by the Trump plan. So in conclusion, let me say that number one, as several of um, my colleagues on this panel have said, and as the New York editorial board uh, uh, declared uh, this past weekend on Saturday, annexing the West Bank is a brazen violation of international law. And as Noura said, of all laws actually, not just international uh, law. So uh, second, that uh, Trump and company seem to be angry with the Palestinians because they are refusing to negotiate. And by the way, uh, Nasser, in spite of the fact that supposedly uh, relationships have been cut between uh, Palestinians uh, and Americans, at least at the official level in terms of coordination, CIA coordination with Palestinian security and so on, I assure you that phone calls are continuing, okay, with different Palestinian uh, officials getting the message, pressuring the leadership uh, to basically back off uh, the step they have taken. And it's not only from the administration, but it's even from the opposition. The Biden campaign is driving Palestinian official nuts, telling them to, to uh, cancel, to pull back uh, their statement and not to do that, to give them a chance in case uh, they win. But the fact of the matter is the administration scheme that has been uh, declared thus far uh, is a non-starter. If you want to understand what's in the scheme, do not read just the document, the American document. Read what, how Netanyahu is interpreting it. Frankly, he, he knows about it more than anybody else. After all, he slept in Kushner's bed. I'm, I'm, I don't know if Kushner was there or not, but <laughs> he, he knows what's in, in the plan and he coordinated. And if you want to see what he means by annexation, take a look at Israel Hayom uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, five days ago, to be uh, exact. He says that Israeli sovereignty will be extended over Judea, Samaria, and the Jordan Valley. Two, the Palestinians have one option. He doesn't use the word, I use the word. It's, he wants them to surrender. He says, and I'm quoting him, only if the Palestinians consent to a complete Israeli security control, they can have their own entity as Trump defines, according to, to Trump's mood. Uh, I'm one of those people of Palestinian origin who do not want a Palestinian state as defined by Trump because it doesn't meet the basic uh, minimal aspirations that I have for my people. And this is to be implemented according to Netanyahu unilaterally and immediately. It's a diktat and no even semblance of, of a process. This is the reversal of all previous peace processes and, and frankly we have been accustomed to so many of them uh, for, for, for many years. What if Biden wins, by the way? What, I mean, Tamara asked me to, to comment a little bit about the elections. Uh, frankly, I think his chances uh, of winning are still uh, minimal, uh, but I really have a serious problem uh, with the uh, uh, positions that have been articulated. Uh, I know there has been a lot of communication between his campaign and our people in Ramallah uh, but frankly, I, I, the same advice I gave the Palestinian leadership when Trump came uh, on the scene, not to trust him because he's going to stab you in the back. I have a feeling the same thing is going to happen here. Uh, they keep talking uh, at best about uh, trying to defend uh, 
a defunct uh, two-state concept, uh, a fiction, as one of our colleagues just said earlier. It is a, 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 a fiction. Uh, I find uh, Biden basically defending antiquated ideas that we have seen before uh, from the Democratic side. Uh, if indeed uh, they have something new uh, to offer uh, to Democrats in this country and to the Palestinians and to future generations of Israelis and Palestinians who deserve peace, uh, they need to come up with a plan to, to restrain Netanyahu, to reverse Trump's irresponsible steps unequivocally uh, in the region and to restore a credible and defensible uh, negotiations process worthy of a true superpower that's indeed uh, committed to peace. Thank you. Thank you, Khalil, and thanks to all of you. Um, we have a lot of questions coming in in just a few minutes. So um, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to quickly go through uh, some of the questions all at once. And I have to apologize that I will not be addressing those that are comments and not questions. And then I will give each one of you maybe a minute um, to try to uh, concisely um, answer any of the questions that you feel strongly about or even uh, just provide some concluding remarks. Uh, there's a question about the impact of uh, American Christian Zionism, if anyone wants to address that. There's a question about uh, the difference, the real difference between uh, de facto and de jure annexation in terms of um, garnering international support. Um, a question about um, uh, related to the fact that Israel has not defined borders and um, should the world withdraw recognition uh, based on that, on that fact. Um, question about uh, whether um, formal annexation will move the political will of um, third party uh, countries to enforce international law and uh, step up to the plate. Um, regarding the Palestinian leadership, um, can there be progress made without official uh, Palestinian leadership uh, in this regard? Uh, some questions about suggestions for Palestinian civil society and how to work with Palestinian leadership and the international community and the BDS movement um, uh, in light of annexation. Uh, final question um, is related to um, the Arab states and particularly uh, citizens in the Gulf. Um, uh, the people asking questions are referring to, um, you know, the fact that some um, of, of our surveys show that uh, the citizens themselves are still supportive of the Palestinian cause. And um, the question is, what should uh, citizens of, of Gulf countries uh, do? I think I will have to end it there. There are many more questions. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time. So I'll just give each one of you about a minute and uh, uh, feel free to provide any uh, remarks or answers um, that uh, you would like. I think I will uh, do the same order. So we'll start with uh, Rashid. Okay. Um, I mean, these are, there are too many. I, I was looking at the questions in the Q&A box. There, there are really too many to answer quickly. So I'll just say two things. Um, one about uh, negotiations, and I want to go back to something that Noura said, and it's something that she quoted me as saying, um, which is that it, it, if, if any Palestinian leadership uh, ever decides it wants to negotiate, it, it must not under any circumstances, whether under a Trump or a Biden or any other administration, 
go into the kind of cage that every negotiation process has constituted for the Palestinians. Every previous negotiation was rigged to give a specific outcome. Uh, only an entirely different kind of process is acceptable. Um, the United States is, put, has put its big thumb on the scales in favor of Israel throughout the process. It must not be allowed to do that. United States mediation is completely unacceptable. The idea that the, the, the solution runs through Washington is one of the stupidest mistakes that Palestinian leadership has made um, over decades. Uh, only Israel's will runs through Washington. Only a set, a, an outcome that reflects what Israel wants can run through Washington. Only an international format, a dip, completely different format is acceptable. The last thing I want to say is that in the absence of the leadership that we, the Palestinian people deserve, uh, it's unfortunately incumbent on Palestinian civil society to, to, to do some of the heavy lifting, which frankly, students, the BDS movement, and some other aspects of Palestinian civil society have been doing. They have done more to advance the Palestine cause than both leaderships, both of the failed leaderships in Ramallah and Gaza uh, in the past few years. Uh, and unfortunately, they're going to have to continue to do that. Um, and one of the things that we should be doing is to put forth a vision, as, as at least one of the speakers said, for what kind of future we want. Sooner or later, there will be a Palestinian leadership that can, that can step into the breach. Uh, and, and help unify a national uh, and renew the national movement. Until then, I think it's up to all of us to be putting forward a vision for Israelis and Palestinians for a decolonized, de-Zionized future. Um, I don't think we're going to end up with a Palestinian state. I, I'm not opposed to it. If it could happen, I don't think it can happen. And I think we have to be thinking well beyond that, uh, unfortunately. Um, I'm not in favor of abandoning that as an objective, however. Um, one thing we're going to have to come to terms with is that there is a, a powerful international consensus since 1947 on a Jewish state, on a state of Israel. That's not, a, our, our, uh, that's not something that was, was imposed with our consent. It violated our national right of self-determination as the majority in Palestine in 1947 and 48. Uh, but it is a fact that we have to contend with, which is why you can't simply discard the two-state solution, however illusory it is, e even while we work towards a... a, a, a a vision that inspires Palestinians and hopefully sooner or later Israelis. Uh, I think we have to deal uh, with the fact that there will have to be some form of, of, of negotiation and that that cannot take place through Washington. Nor Biden, nor Trump has the best interest of the Palestinian people. The, the Democratic Party and its leadership and its leadership is as Zionist as is the Republican Party. It's as committed to false outcomes as far as we are, we are concerned that violate all kinds of basic Palestinian rights that don't take into account uh, what has to happen for there to be a, a sustainable and just and lasting solution. And I think there should be pushback to the Biden people as, as, as firmly as possible. They don't represent the Democratic Party. Democratic Party is represented by a base which is much more sympathetic to us. And we should be speaking to, we as civil society should be speaking to and energizing that base, not trying to negotiate with a leadership that is the Clintons, Obama, Biden, Schumer, Pelosi, these are people who are as pro-Israeli as anybody in the Trump camp. They're not as extreme, but they're as pro-Israeli. And I think those people have to be told, we, don't rep we, don't, we, we, we cannot agree with you on this, 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 and this. You have, you have to be speaking to basic things that involve justice and that involve equality in Palestine. And this is not just, or that is not just, and that is not equal. And, and those are principles that any American should be able to understand. Uh, even the most Zionist 
even the most committed to Israel's position has to be confronted with this fact. Um, so that's that's the, the, the those are my, those are the those are my concluding remarks. Thank you. And thanks for this opportunity. Thank you, Rashid and um, uh, Nasser. If you'd like to say a few words. Yeah, I'll try to very quickly to uh, make some some comments. First, Jahshan told me, uh, assured me that uh, there has been contacts with uh, some American officials. I'm not surprised because I didn't have lots of confidence in the continuity of the policy, but I'm not aware of, of such contacts. I would appreciate it if Khalil can tell us or tell me uh, about these about these contacts. Second points about uh, regaining Palestinian unity, Gaza, Hamas. Uh, this is uh, this is an issue of utmost importance. It's a central issue, actually, and I don't think that the Palestinian side can fulfill its its duties and obligations in confronting our enemies without changing the internal situation first and foremost, achieving that unity. The only reason I didn't address this in in a in in a reasonable way is, is is frankly I thought that this is outside the uh, subject matter uh, of all of us uh, today. Uh, number three, when we say uh, nothing new about the uh, the impending uh, annexation, what what do we mean exactly? Do we mean that there was long-standing policies in this regard? We agree on that, or do we mean that it's business as usual, nothing new? We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't do much. I mean, it's much ado about nothing. I, I wouldn't agree uh, on that. I think this is very serious, very, very, very serious development. It, take, it takes all of us, Palestinians, Israelis, the whole world from a situation to a completely different uh, situation. Uh, my fourth and last uh, comment, uh, again, when we say defunct two-state solution, what does this mean exactly? Uh, do we mean defunct process that continued without any result for 20 years? Or do we mean uh, it is defunct to speak about the right of the Palestinian people to, to, to statehood, to self-determination and national independence? And if so, what's the alternative? What are we struggling for? What do we want to uh, achieve? I think we need to be a little bit more specific, especially with regard to these essential uh, points. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Nasser. And next we have uh, Raif with uh, your concluding remarks. If you could turn on your microphone, please. Raif, we don't have your sound. Could you please turn on your microphone? Yes, go ahead. I muted myself. Extremely short, I think. Can we use this event uh, from the jury, from de facto to the jury? Can we capitalize on that? Can we use that? We can use that uh, on one condition. If we're not restricting the available solution to the two-state solution. Because the, the fact that now Israel is annexing parts of the West Bank, then Anybody who comes to speak to me about the two-state solution, the first thing I would ask where that state would be. If I want to sign a peace agreement with Israel, where do I stand in order to sign the peace agreement with Israel? I mean, where, where is that can take place? Um, so 
if one wants to take the one-state solution as an option, or at least as a room for maneuver, then this can help. But if one to stick to the two-state solution, I don't see that uh, this can help um, in any way. It's just another defeat of the of the two-state solution. Now, I, I have much to say. I, I know Nasser's position on the one-state, two-states. I'm not a big fan of the one-state per se in itself. But I think one should think ontologically that there's one-state solution and two-state solution. The, the issue is that the discourse, the conversation, talking about the possibility of two-state solution hides from, from us and from the Israelis and from the international community to figure out and to conceptualize the reality of now as an ongoing uh, uh, colonization of Palestine that goes beyond mere occupation. So the two-state solution is not only a solution, it's a practice, it's a discourse, and in part it's a, becoming an illusion that hinders us from conceptualizing reality. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Raif. Uh, Nura, go ahead. Thanks. Um, I just want to start by echoing the, the, the critique of even the framework of saying one state versus two state. Two state makes it seem just as like the discourse, just to emphasize what people are saying, that there's two states to be created. Israel has been a state since 1948. It has been accepted as a member state of the United Nations. It's been recognized by the PLO in 1988 and again in 1993 in the Declaration of Principles. So long as we say two states, we're obscuring the power imbalance that Ra'af is highlighting and that others have highlighted. This is about the creation of a Palestinian state and the vision of, of, of a truncated state as a pathway to liberation. But we've had since 1993 empirical evidence that demonstrates this is a futile project and Israel continues to expand. And now what's at stake more as, as ever, but even more glaring, is how we hold Israel to account. If we, use the, if we use the establishment of a Palestinian state as a paradigm, we go to negotiations, getting two sides to concede. This has to be about um, somehow ba you know, balance between them versus when we highlight the one state reality, we then can condemn Israel's system of racial domination, its settler colonial practi uh, practices, its processes, and rather than pushing for dialogue and sitting at the table, the, the call becomes sanctions. The call becomes punishment, right? The call becomes pressure. It's highlighting Israel as a rogue state. And that is a, that, so just in terms of what becomes available to us. On that same note, and here just to lift up again, the important um, point that Leila was making about decolonization. When the U.S. moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, Palestinians in Jerusalem suburbs like aren't, aren't concerned that they now lost their, the capital of a Palestinian state, the fear became that they are going to be removed forcibly. Their homes are gonna be demolished. This is about belonging. Israel doesn't mind if Palestinians remain so long as we don't make any claims to national rights. That's an echo of the Balfour Declaration. We can have religious and civil rights. We can't have national rights, so we can't lose um, our target, that this is about decolonization. And then finally, besides the external work that we should be doing, right, this external 
full frontal resistance, which we have so much energy and so much talent and so many opportunities that are being missed, right, is the internal work that has to be happening within Palestinian, not only the unity between um, the government, uh, between the two leading uh, political parties, but just how much, you know, going back to the idea that right now Palestinians have survived COVID better than people in the United States because they're drawing on a history of mutual aid. We've always survived by relying on one another. And it, it, it should make clear for us that sovereignty vests in people, not in states. We are already sovereign. How we work and realize that sovereignty is really incumbent upon us and has nothing to do with any external forces, but is about us. And in that same note, our entire leadership, its structures, needs to be um, needs to be replaced with a new youth leadership that can take more risks, that has more vision, that has more energy, right? Um, and and that needs to happen across all political parties. That needs to happen across all national institutions. There is a reason that the academy is filled with remarkable young talent, and yet none of those none of that talent is filling our political leadership and our national liberation movement. Thank you, Nura, for that. Um, next, we have uh, Leila for your final remarks. Uh, thank you all. I, I echo them all, and I, I will not repeat them. I will just try to build on them by addressing really the issue of how do we rethink the state, rather, uh, and from the point of uh, Nura and others, that basically the sovereignty, we as Palestinians, our sovereignty as people has been affirmed. What has not been affirmed is the sovereignty of our state. And this means that we need to rethink the state because the nation state has also become a little bit obsolete. We are in the 21st century, we're not in the 20th century. So we need to take stock, as Rai said, take stock of where we are at this historical moment and find the language to address the historical moment we are in, the language of liberation in the 21st century, in an era of, after the catastrophe of neoliberalism, after the problem of COVID, and after the Palestinians have achieved recognition of their right to self-determination. So I think, and this question cannot be detached from what's happening in the region. This brings me to the question of the Arab state, the difference between the Gulf citizens and the states. Um, as Rashid also mentioned, the, Palestinian, the Arab population have all been for democracy and for the Palestinians. The Arab uprisings have lost the first round, but I doubt that they will be forgotten forever. There will be another uprising because these uprisings were precisely about not the nation state, was about reminding the state of their responsibility to respect and protect the citizens, not to violate them in the name of national unity, whatever that is. So I think we are living a historical moment whereby everything is changing. We still do not know what the new is be, but we know that the old is dead. And as we are in the process of defining what the new is, we need to have this conversation of defining what is our next step in an inclusive, open uh, discussion that includes all us Palestinians, but also includes what's happening in the Arab world and what's happening in the US and what's happening globally. Because struggles of justice are intertwined, they're not separate. And the state can be tamed for the sake of affirming people's rights, irrespective of their ethnicity, for affirming that decolonization is not about creating ethnic states, is about creating the state of all its citizens, under whatever form, whether it is two state, three state, six state, I don't care. But the point is equal rights, and respect of dignity and people's collective and individual rights without racism. Thank you. Thank you, Leila. And um, last, uh, Khalil, you have the last word. Go ahead.
Khalil, I think your microphone is off. Yes. I think it's on now. Uh, would like to respond to just a couple of the questions that you uh, summarized. One, uh, clearly uh, being part of a protracted conflict like the Palestine conflict that has lasted so long, uh, uh, definitely what we are facing today is, is totally different from what we have faced in the past. This is not the first difficulty uh, we go through. We've been through dozens of them, but I feel that this is the most existential uh, of all the others. There is an attempt here to terminate uh, our cause, and I think it's serious. It is a declaration of war, and we have to think outside the box. We have to respond in ways we are not accustomed to that we haven't done uh, in, in the past. And just a minor uh, response to the Christian Zionism issue. Yes, they are a crucial uh, factor in the support system uh, for Mr. Trump and, and his administration. However, I feel they have been exaggerated. I mean, it wasn't incidental that Trump walks across Lafayette Park a couple of days ago and, and waves uh, the Bible to his uh, followers to get them excited. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm saying using this image to say, I don't know who's manipulating whom. I, I think Trump is, 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 is uh, kind of uh, getting the most out of this weird relationship because people in this country still do not vote uh, as uh, vote for Christ. Uh, but uh, they are, in a way, a block, and they, they, uh, he appeals to them. But I think he's manipulating uh, them more than uh, they are manipulating uh, him. Thank you. Thank you, Khalil. And uh, with that, we are out of time. And uh, I apologize that we went a few minutes uh, over time here, but uh, it was a, a very important discussion. Uh, on behalf of Arab Center Washington DC and the Institute for Palestine Studies, I would like to especially thank the speakers who joined us today. I'd like to thank you all for your time and for your uh, insightful contributions. And I would like to thank the viewers uh, uh, who were joining in. Um, just as a, a note, the video of uh, the, the recording of this will be available on our website and the IPS website uh, later today or tomorrow. Um, I would like to invite you to follow our work and keep in touch at ArabCenterDC.org and Palestine-Studies.org. We look forward to seeing you hopefully in person uh, at our events in the future. Stay safe and take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Tamara, for organizing Good to see you all, even virtually. <laughs>